Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you enjoy this podcast series, will you do a little AA service by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? It's another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. My guest on today's show is Joseph L., who got sober in AA entirely on Zoom during the COVID pandemic. As of the date of this interview, that was over two years ago. Since then, he has enthusiastically embraced the program in a way that will inspire those AA members in their early years to stay the course and recover from the disease of alcoholism. Joseph came from a strict upbringing during which he followed all the rules for being good, but did so at the expense of his self-esteem, confidence, and general enjoyment of life. By the time he found alcohol late in his teens, it rapidly became his best friend and constant companion. Deep into his successful career in the corporate world, where he drank all the time, the alcoholism that had always been in tow morphed into a full-blown destroyer. It ruthlessly sank every opportunity for happiness and left him bereft of all hope for the future. By the time he called for help, his life had become increasingly hopeless and suicidal thoughts recurred to him on a daily basis. Fortunately, the man he called had been sober over 30 years and was one who lived the AA life. He took Joseph under his wing, initiating a rigorous program of action and accountability. Today, Joseph credits his sponsor for literally saving his life and AA for safeguarding his future. Though we live states away, I can count on seeing Joseph at the Zoom meetings we both attend. I look forward to meeting him in person one day and sharing some in-person meetings with him. I think you'll find Joseph is wise beyond his years of sobriety, and those of you with less than two years will find much to be inspired with by his story. So gather up your friends and enjoy this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my AA brother I gratefully found on Zoom, Joseph L. I'm Joseph. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Joseph. That's what I say. Thanks so much for doing the interview today on AA Recovery Interviews, this podcast that allows AA members from around the world to share their experience, strength, and hope by relating their stories of getting sober and their lives since getting sober. I'm really excited to have you on the show today because you have achieved a pretty big milestone recently in your sobriety. That's right. Um, I recently celebrated two years, and I'm coming up on the three-year anniversary of starting with AA. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, you know that period includes uh, a day or so of relapse. Yeah, I got sober about four months into COVID. Four months in. Was that the first time you'd ever attempted to get sober? It's the first time I ever asked for help. First time you asked for help. So all the other times you thought you could do it on your own? Oh, yeah. Um, that's, a, <laughs> that's a really popular delusion, right? Yeah. I have the benefit or the curse, depending on how you, how you put it, uh, much like my sponsor, of being a periodic. So I could fool myself mm-hmm. by you know, going a month, two months, three months without drinking. I could fool myself really, really well. Mm-hmm. But when I came back to it... There wasn't any any fooling anyone. It was pretty clear what the problem is. Yeah, I get that. When everybody around you can see it and we can't see it ourselves, that's when it becomes uh, pretty difficult. True. 
So things have gotten to the point at which you decided that you needed to stop drinking. How bad had they really gotten? Well, it was late May, early June after, um, after we all locked ourselves in our homes for a bit. I had always been someone who enjoyed happy hour. Mm -hmm. And once we had nowhere to go, we were doing a lot of Zoom happy hours. And um, happy hour went from being 5 o'clock to... Let's say three o'clock. Three o'clock, okay. Or maybe it became one thirty, or maybe it was uh, eleven a.m. You know, because every day was like a weekend. It's a very, very slippery slope from that to, well, you know, what would be good with these eggs? How about a glass of white wine? <laughs> yeah, white wine always goes great with eggs, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it goes well with anything if you have enough of it. Did your drinking actually progress after the pandemic started? Did you find yourself, by virtue of being at home for longer periods of time, was it increasing steadily or did it kind of hold at a certain level for a while? It increased precipitously for me, I would say. I've always tended to be the kind of person who could take it or leave it as far as whether you have the first one. But if I drank one, you know, three was a guarantee. Uh, five or six would be a pretty good bet, too. Mm. There's someone you and I both know who I used to drink with, and we would every now and then uh, joke about going down to this taco place and having a margarita, because neither of us has ever seen a margarita. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that work out? <laughs> Predictably. I think if I if I kept going, it would have gone to a pretty bad place. And I was just fortunate that I already knew uh, Wes, my sponsor, through uh, you know through a completely different part of life. And um, so when I asked for help, you know, he was he was there and he he showed me how to do this. Yeah, that's amazing. I've had the opportunity to get to know Wes, and you and I actually met each other at a meeting that we both attend that's actually out of another state from both of us. I'm in Texas, you're in Colorado, and the meeting that we participate in and have been doing since COVID and Zoom is actually out on the West Coast. Did you know that he was in the program before you needed help? Oh, I did. I had been dating someone for a while who knew them, mm -hmm. and she had introduced me to Wes and Victoria, and we had a had a dinner out at one point, and then we decided to have them over for dinner another time. And Howard, I would say it was a good two or three hours prior to their arrival that I was going through my house and finding anything that even suggested alcohol, because naive as I was, I thought I might offend them if I had it, you know, had anything sitting around. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's kind of the opposite of the way most people do it. Most people have more booze, so maybe they can encourage the person who's not drinking to take a drink, right? <laughs> you know, there's something about Wes. He's the last yeah. person you'd ever offer a drink to because he's got, you know, he's got this presence, this aura about him. If it had been someone else, I don't know that the sponsor relationship would have worked out. There was something about him that I think is just... Uh, it's deeply moving to me as a person, and it was even before I, you know, asked him for this kind of help. Mm -hmm. There's just something about his presence that is kind and gentle, but that man is a force of nature. Whenever he and I have talked and we talk about how he and his sponsor get along and the work that they do, this is a guy who takes his sobriety seriously. So when I think about the handful of people I know in the world of AA 
who are absolutely terrific sponsors by virtue of how I see them sponsoring other people. He's definitely on that list. I'm really grateful to hear that you and he have a, that sponsor-sponsor relationship. I wanted to get your initial impressions of AA when you first came in. You hadn't been to a live meeting before you went to Zoom. That's right. I had not. So your first experience with Alcoholics Anonymous, a program that was always a knee-to-knee, eye-to-eye, in-the-flesh organization, suddenly became online, two-dimensional, people able to do whatever they want off screen and uh, still participate. A lot of people that I knew were just not impressed enough with Zoom to even want to do it at the time. And over time, what happened was they realized that if they didn't do Zoom, they weren't going to get a meeting. And that became a pretty serious matter. Zoom babies, they called them, came in who had never been to a live meeting. So tell me what you felt or what you thought about the first meetings that you went to online. Well, I think I very much fit in that camp of the Zoom babies. Mm -hmm. I remember when I reached out to Wes and asked for help. He said, would you like to go to an AA meeting? And I said, hell no. I I don't want to identify as being an alcoholic. (laughs) I just want to stop hurting. (laughs) And Wes said that. Very gentle way he has uh, said something uh, to the effect of, Joseph, you asked me for help, and this is the way that I know how to help Mm -hmm. you. We had a little talk about that, and I was at a point where I was feeling pretty uh, beaten up anyway. So Wes explained that because of COVID, all of the meetings that he had been to in L.A., the ones where he got sober, had gone online. I guess he had had about four months to really get a rhythm mm-hmm. of that. And so the first one he had, he invited me to was the one that you and I attend. Yeah. Well, a couple of things. One, I took the 90 meetings in 90 days thing very seriously. Mm-hmm. I think it ended up being something like 120 or 130 mm-hmm. meetings in the first 90 days. As you said, if you don't go on Zoom, you're probably not going to get a meeting uh, during quarantine. And maybe just, you know, Generally, not at all if you're somewhere that doesn't have as many meetings as somewhere like L.A. or New York or somewhere mm-hmm. like that. But Wes had a particular fondness for recovery in L.A. And I can I can understand why now. But when I first uh, logged into to our Saturday morning meeting, I didn't know what to expect. I think the whole branding of Alcoholics Anonymous really misses what the what the hidden gift is. Mm. I figured it was going to be a bunch of people who were just hanging on by their fingernails <laughs> talking about how they lost their house and their car. And, you know, just typical country song kind of right. stuff. I didn't have to hang out for too long before I heard some people talking about building a great life, about being happy for the first time in their lives, about finding real contentment and inner peace. And they weren't miserable. They, uh, they turned out to be happy. Did you buy it? Um, yeah. I think that first meeting, I thought, wow, this is a real anomaly of a meeting. This must be a real aberration. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to another L.A. meeting the next morning. Our friend James was there, a couple of other people that I knew from uh, the Saturday meeting that I had just met were there. And that one was also really good in its own way. And so I went to a meeting that Sunday night, and I think I've got all of them written down for the first 500 or so. But every time I would go, 
I wouldn't hear very much about suffering or struggling or, you know, how much I want to have mm -hmm. a drink. I would hear things about, you know, gosh, I'm so glad that I admitted that I had a problem and just, you know, gave in, gave up and actually did as I was told. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, Howard, that, that, was, um, that was one of the challenges for me early on. You know, throughout most of life, I've been rewarded and encouraged for uh, for appearing to be smart, for having the answers to things, for uh, being you know manager of people and all that. This is the first place I'd ever been where people said and meant, "Just sit there and listen, do as you're told," and it's exactly what I needed at that point in life. Yeah, and it, isn't it interesting? that we want the accolades and the attaboys and everything else for doing the things that normal people just do all the time. As alcoholics, we, I think, sometimes expect different dispensation because we we're getting sober. For a lot of people I know, it was, uh, it was an opportunity to try out AA without literally having to get in your car and drive to a meeting, walk into a room with people you don't know. What's your sobriety date? April 24th of 21. Now, I think I was at some of your very first meetings. And did you have a relapse during that period of time? Tell me about that. I did. So in that first year, and it's, it's kind of funny, you were talking about you know, different dispensations in AA. I was there for exactly the same dispensations. I expected that I could get an A in AA. Mm -hmm. I would study this book more intensely than anyone had ever studied it. I would pass all the tests. I would say just the right thing when I shared. Mm -hmm. You know, if I were to tell anyone who's just starting out, you know, what I learned in that first year, it would be don't do that. Yeah. Just give up the trying. The trying is a part of part of the disease. When people talk about the God thing, mm -hmm. you know, I think needing to know the God thing is part of the disease. So, you know, I feel like when I finally came to truly surrender, I knew the difference. But in that first year, I didn't. Yeah. And... Um, so I came to a point about 10 and a half months in where something happened. Uh, I got my feelings hurt. Mm -hmm. I you know, started into some self-pitying behavior. And from the self-pitying behavior, you know, it's a quick trip to, well, screw it. No one cares if I take a drink. I'm just going to go, you know, use this thing that I know so well to numb out what I'm feeling. Mm. And that lasted about a day, uh, at which point I ended up on Wes's doorstep and spent three days in his basement. I thought it was a good thing, though, that um, when it got at its most desperate and bleak, rather than just continuing to go, I said, ah, I need to, just for this moment, just go see my sponsor. That was about as much thought as there was. It was just, this isn't working. I have to give up. Somebody else must have a better answer. So you, you've actually got, when we take a look at the total amount of AA experience you've got, uh, you're pushing three years on that if you count the 10 months. I like to think that for people who relapse, they haven't really lost anything except their sobriety. I know that might sound kind of confusing or trite to listeners, but what I mean by that is that everything that we learn to do or not to do, when the relapse occurs, it suddenly either becomes true or false, and suddenly all that experience and things we were told makes sense, like all at once. So it didn't work out very well for you, did it? It did not, but it, it was the best thing that could have happened. What were you expecting? Well, I was expecting that I could just turn off the bad feelings for a day. That may be the, the great hope of any alcoholic who <laughs> reaches for a drink. I just want to turn off this feeling for today. 
But what actually happened is that everything that I had done, all of those, all of those meetings, all of the step work, mm -hmm. the daily work with the steps, the prayers and meditation, it wasn't wasted time, even though I wasn't yet emotionally sober. Right. What this caused me to do is to give up that last bit of control that I was holding on to and bring myself back with humility, with a willingness just to listen. Yeah. I didn't struggle with um, the God thing in the way that a lot of people did, but I struggled really with that first step, you know, where it says our lives had become unmanageable. Well, my life wasn't feeling unmanageable. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd, I'd had plenty of successes sure. in life. You know, I'm, I'm one of those highly functioning alcoholics, <laughs> right? <laughs> and for those people, it's even harder to get sober because everything about your functionality gets in the way of knowing that you're really heading down the drain. Yeah, I get that. That You know, I when I first came in, I don't know if you, if you felt this way, but when I first came in, I saw the steps on the wall and I thought it was a self-help program. I swear, I, I can't tell you how many I'm okay, you're okay, all the other self-help books that I had read over the years while I was continuing to drink and use and none of them seemed to work. And then I get to AA and I see some more of these rules, you know, and there are always rules in the self-help books, write down the 10 most important things you want to accomplish in your lifetime and all that kind <laughs> of good stuff. And I thought it was that. And then I saw God and I thought, oh, no, you know, here I was thinking this may be my only shot and they're going to they're going to want to shove religion down my throat. So I didn't really engage in the program very much for the first 10 months. That's about the amount of time I had. And AA is a miserable place to hang out when you're not doing the work and everybody around you seems to be and they seem to be getting better and I'm not. And. So I wasn't doing it. I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't do any of that kind of stuff. And I was heading out the door at 10 months, kind of like you. I thought, I'm not feeling any better. I'm feeling worse for doing this. So I'm leaving. And a few people who are the kind of people that you and I probably are in meetings where we see somebody kind of, you know, walking towards the edge of the cliff, you know, catch them up by their shirt tail and pull them back and say, why don't you try things our way? And that's exactly what happened for me. And it wasn't until that, but I still didn't get the God deal like you did. What was there about God and, and belief in spirituality at that point that got you through the first few steps? Well, for that first 10 months or so, uh, you know, people are so sensitive about it. They, they want you to know, like, we're not telling you what God is. You know, it's a God as you understand mm -hmm. him or whatever. And that to me was just a ticket to say, okay, so, you know, God, great. It's not a terribly central part of this program. Right. And so I didn't struggle with the God thing. I just kind of ignored it, you know, and got on with the rest of it. What the relapse really taught me, and this is, this is a huge, huge thing to me in my sobriety. After I was, after I humiliated myself, mm -hmm. made myself humble enough that I was ready to truly surrender and give up, there was a shift. And the shift was from thinking that maybe God was out there somewhere, mm -hmm. somewhere, somewhere in the sky, up in the clouds, looking down somewhere different, not, not involved in our trivial little lives down here. When I came out of Wes's basement and then in the you know weeks and months that followed, 
I guess that humility had created just enough space where I could understand that God is here and present in me. Mm. And I can't explain what God is. I'm not sure that any God worthy of, um, of honoring would, uh, would be explainable. Mm-hmm. But for me, I've, I felt that calm, gentle presence inside of me, and I had never felt anything like that in my life. Mm. I had never felt comfortable. I had never let my guard down. I had, you know, 50 years of keeping my defenses up, making sure that no one ever saw emotions, making sure that I had had the answer at the ready. When I was ready to give all that up, I actually felt God. And I I feel God, you know, every day now. I feel, you know, just this low, quiet, gentle presence that uh, makes life more manageable. Um, makes it less, makes all this stuff less important. And it makes it easier for me to know what it is I'm doing when I pray, when I meditate, when I'm sitting in a room of other alcoholics. And I can imagine being with a guy like Wes, who in his own way is a very spiritually centered individual, seeing that and experiencing that can't not but have an effect on somebody. So it's amazing and beautiful that you had him in your life at that point when you needed that kind of support. So it sounds to me like you had, let's say, reticence or hesitancy when it came to the God part of living itself. What, what would that be a throwback to? And what was your what was your experience with that when you were growing up and spirituality and God in general? Well, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in the deep uh-huh. south, a small town prior to internet and, you know, no, no criticism of anyone's uh, spiritual path, but at least for me, I, you know, I felt like it was really good training for becoming either an atheist or an alcoholic or both. Mm. And I think it was more about the culture of the religion than the religion itself. Having had that spiritual experience that I was mentioning before, I can go back and I can see the Bible as I read it as a kid and I understand it differently. Mm. I experience the entire thing differently. But I had pretty strict parents growing up. Dad was a county judge. Mm. He expected excellence. You know, he was Mr. Everything in, in high school. Mom also was, was pretty strict. And we were in the church you know, every time the door opened. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in a small town, kind of a Mayberry uh, kind of town, there wasn't just a whole lot of room to do anything that was, that was bad. Mm. So a lot of my training was in how to be good. Didn't touch alcohol during uh, during my teenage years. You know, I was I was a good kid, straight A's and on time for everything and all that. So were you good so that bad things wouldn't happen to you uh, if you were not good? <laughs> <laughs> yep, <laughs> that's it. it. It was never about a reward. It was always about consequences. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. So you were a good kid. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. When did you start veering off of of being a good kid? Or did you? I didn't at all until my parents divorced, which happened um, was the spring of my freshman year in college. It's just out of the blue to me. I I think I was probably naive. It wasn't out of the blue to to everyone. But there was something about that where I thought, hey, you know, I kept my end of the bargain. I did all of the things that I was supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you guys are letting down your end of the bargain. Well, 
I think I'm going to go have a drink. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was about as quick as that. Was that premeditated? I mean, did, was there a point in your life when you said, if anything ever turns bad for me, I'm then I'll take a drink? Or were you just not exposed to it? Nope. I just wasn't really exposed to it. And your folks, they didn't drink? No. Uh, Dad stopped drinking when he was 33, mm. I believe. Mom would still have some, but very, you know, very quietly, not uh, not so you'd notice. I wasn't led to um, to be all that interested in drinking. Um, mm. But then my great uncle, you know, he self-identified as an alcoholic. He, he had plenty of trouble with alcohol over his life. Mm -hmm. And he and I became kind of close friends after my parents divorced. And I think, you know, that showed me the um, the path. So it's not like I was waiting to do it, but once I started, I was ready. As a good kid doing the right things, getting good grades and uh, not causing any trouble, how did you feel about yourself growing up? What was your frame of mind as a kid? Well, I was smart enough to be able to get good grades without trying very mm -hmm. hard. I knew the rules well enough how, you know, that I could, I could really follow the rules as well as anyone possibly could in my you know quiet time when i had you know when i have any sort of recollection of my own thoughts mm -hmm. my mind was always elsewhere you know I, I liked to read quite a bit i was always escaping through a book had a pretty active imagination I'm not sure that i liked myself very much i i think i spent a lot of time just being afraid of my parents mm -hmm. uh, but when all of that kind of came to a grinding halt, I didn't really know who I was. I, I didn't know myself very well at all. Did you have to create your own persona or did what kind of life were you living at that point? I was living a life that was starting to fall apart. So I got to college and I recognized that I didn't really know how to um, just continue effortlessly getting good grades. I didn't know how to fit in. I didn't really know how to, how to live as a grown up, I hadn't picked up the skills along the way. You know, there was there was some persona building in there. Really, Howard, I think that that continued for decades. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I really knew who I was until you know, till AA. That's a common refrain, I think, for a lot of us. It, it was for me. I had to I had to act a certain way to get people to not not like me. You know, I, I would like to say it was to get people to like me, but my upbringing, there was always that shaming and berating and everything else behavior coming from the people who are supposed to be loving me. So whenever I had the opportunity to be around people who didn't yet know me, I'd go out of my way to try and be the clown or be the, you know, show off or whatever, uh, just because I didn't want people not to like me. And uh, that kind of dragged right into my alcoholism and drug addiction because I didn't start using until I was about 17 or 18. How old were you when you uh, when you first took a drink? Nineteen. Was it that you weren't offered it before, or was it just that you decided you didn't you didn't want to drink when it was when it was offered previously? <laughs> well, uh, what I wanted to do was never a part of my thought process. <laughs> Occasionally, someone in high school would offer me uh, something to drink, but. Most people didn't, and I didn't get invited to most parties because people knew that my dad was the judge, oh, yeah. and they knew that he was very strict. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think it would have been a little risky for people to uh, involve me in their drinking. I got, you know, I got offered some beers. Um, I think somebody offered me a joint one time, but you know, the other part of it was that I was so on the program of being a good kid and so scared of the consequences that it wasn't even something I could consider. I knew that I would be in big, big trouble if I got caught. So you were in this very structured and rigid environment when you were home, and then you go off to college about the same time your folks get divorced. Yep. So those two things conflate to create a real mindset geared towards drinking or using drugs, don't they? Yeah. Well, add in a little bit of social awkwardness and the fact that just being effortlessly smart and getting good grades was beginning to fail. You know, there were a lot of things in life that had worked well enough up to that point. And, mm -hmm. you know, at some point they stopped working. So you started drinking in college. What was your drinking career like by and large? Early days, it was... Um, it was pretty mild. You know, I think 40-year-old me would really judge 20-year-old me's <laughs> choice of what he drank. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it started out with wine coolers and uh, cheap beer. And I can't remember the first time I had a glass of a decent wine. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I never really got into all that much was hard liquor. You know, I could have a cocktail every now and then, but that wasn't the thing where I thought, oh gosh, if one of these is, if one of these is good, six would be really good. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, uh, a beer, a glass of wine, you know, well, there's six in a six pack and four glasses of wine in a bottle, you know, just the math seemed to work out pretty yeah. well. Yeah. How many drinks did you need to take before you got to that perfect combination of relaxation and self-acceptance and all the other good things that we drink for and we overshoot the market eventually? But did you have to drink a lot to get that way or, or, or were you there after just a couple of glasses of wine? Early days, I think one or two would do it. Mm -hmm. But even, you know, at the, at the height of my drinking career, you know, three would be a very good, you know, point of relaxation. Mm -hmm. Four would, uh, you know, be a little bit more relaxed. Um, beyond that, it would get a little sloppy, you know, but I felt disinhibited for the first time in life. It was funny how predictable that was. I can guess by the question that, um, you know, that you probably have your ideal number as well. Well, I, I did until I was a freshman and I went to one of these parties where they basically had a big plastic garbage can and people each brought all types of different booze and they would pour it in there and then they'd add a bunch of high C and then uh, tasted like punch. And that's exactly what it did to you. It punched you like silly. And I had never drank before more than just a little bit. I got so drunk that they were passing a tequila bottle around and I didn't know how to drink tequila. So I, I went, I took the bottle, went in the kitchen and poured half a glass of tequila and put seven up in the rest of it because I like the sweet drinks. And I got so violently, I think I might've been alcohol poisoned, but I got so violently ill that I thought I'll never do this again. And certainly within a couple of weeks, I was doing it again. When did you first notice that you were getting drunk or sick? Did you have any consequences? The biggest consequence, I think, was getting sick early on. It didn't go there right away. I, you know, I think the first time I got sick, I, I thought, oh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't really much of a speed yeah. bump, you know, but it was the first time I thought, wow, there's something 
to this other than just feeling good and being able to, uh, you know, to talk to people mm. more comfortably. Yeah. So you went through college drinking? Yeah, I um, dropped out of college drinking um, and, you know, just moping and, you know, not really knowing who I was or what I was going to do with my life. Had some um, good jobs and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was, I was still managing the whole thing pretty well. You know, I, I was never someone who drank during the day. You know, I could have a beer after work or something like that. But those early days, there wasn't like this precipitous decline. Mm -hmm. I got out, I worked, I earned money every now and then. I would party with friends. But throughout those first few years, it was pretty mild. And then um, after a time, you know, I'd have a night here or there that I think, oh, I don't remember going to bed last <laughs> yeah. night. Oh, I don't usually feel this bad in the morning, you know, <laughs> just things like that. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the big book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. Was the dropping out of college due to the alcohol or was it more about the decisions and the way you were feeling about yourself? It was more about uh, the way I was feeling about myself. I wasn't doing well, wasn't getting good grades. I felt uh, felt very abandoned and isolated. You know, when my parents split, my brother uh, lived with my dad, my sister lived with my mom, and I just, you know, was kind of, you know, the odd man out. So you were bouncing back and forth? Yeah, and not really even bouncing back and forth. I was just kind of by myself in the hmm. world. What was what was your relationship like with your siblings? Not particularly close. Didn't go home that much because being home wasn't you know, a particularly great place to be. We were separate enough in age that we would have different friend groups, different social circles, uh, just by by virtue of age. So um, we didn't stay really close. I was really pretty isolated. Yeah, I get that. I had similar sort of experiences uh, that going home at break never was that enjoyable of a thing, except you get together with friends and go out and drink. So you left school and you, what, what, what happened then? Did I worked, I was, you know, pretty decently good with computers mm -hmm. and that was a time when people needed that kind of help. So I did a lot of that sort mm -hmm. of work. I ended up finishing my undergraduate degree in my late 20s, hmm. then uh, starting grad school after that. I think grad school was the first time I really decided what I wanted to do in life mm -hmm. rather than going by the, you know, the scripts that my parents or teachers might have had. You know, during grad school, I also had a lot of emotional highs and lows. You know, I finally came to, uh, came to understand that the brain isn't really running the show. It's the heart that's running the show. And I didn't know anything about how, you know, how to be with that. Hmm. In what way did you notice that coming back to you early in, in sobriety and in working your steps? Did, 
Did you notice the connect or disconnect when it came to emotions and feelings? Yeah, I think that's um, that's a pretty big thread throughout my own experience of sobriety. Uh -huh. I was raised in a way where uh, I think intellect, you know, being a rational, logical thinker, was you know really really prized, really valued. Emotions, on the other hand, you know, you might remember the old ads about you know never let them see the sweat. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, there was no crying in the house where I grew mm -hmm. up. That was not allowed. Strictly taboo. The spiritual upbringing that I had, you know, I, I thought of God as being like Barry Gibb in flowing white robes <laughs> up in the cloud somewhere. <laughs> and so I had to reconfront all of that. Uh, you know, during early sobriety, I tried to have the answers and to think my way through it and got my butt handed to me uh, a couple of times, including when I relapsed, because this is not a program of, you know, having better ideas or thinking smarter thoughts. Yeah. This is a program of stopping doing that and listening. So is it safe to say that you finally found in AA what you thought you had found with alcohol along the way? And at what point along the way would you have felt that way? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely fair. There is no drug that I know of that delivers, you know, the contentment, the inner peace that sobriety does. You know, <laughs> you spend enough time looking in that big book, you start to see things where you, you know, you kind of chuckle when you see yeah. it. You know, like men who have lost their legs. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking when they were writing about <laughs> losing their legs, but that was funny. But there's this this one passage that we read every, every mm -hmm. week that talks about, you know, science may one day help an alcoholic drink like a normal man, but it hasn't done so yet. Mm. And I always hear that and think, and I hope it never does, because this feels more like the natural state of a human being to me than anything I've experienced in my life. So would you have been one of those guys standing in line waiting for the scientific breakthrough? Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you had caught me about three years mm -hmm. ago, I would say, yes. Um, what can I do to get to the front of this line? <laughs> not just <laughs> not just I'm going to wait in this line, but I'm going to figure out uh, a way to enjoy this. You know, I'll have my cake and eat it, too. Yeah. I have to remember so many of the things that you're saying, Joseph, have such wisdom and such feeling associated with them. I, I'm almost losing track of the fact that you've been sober just really like two years. And I hear a lot of people with much more sobriety talking with the inspiring, meaningful language that you're expressing here. And I know because of who you are and us getting to know you that it is genuine. I had a problem when I was new in sobriety the first couple of years, couple, three years, once I finally realized I had to do the work. I had this persona that I thought the way to demonstrate that I'm sober is by convincing other people that I'm sober. It always led to exaggeration and embellishment. And I'll never forget one day a woman who had about eight years uh, and I, I was sober maybe like 10 months or a year. And I'm in the meeting just espousing all this happy horse shit that I learned and, and stuff that I had read into the literature. And I shared that day and the woman came up to me afterwards and she said, how long have you been sober? I said, well, less than a year. And she said, well, you are really making a lot of progress, Howard. You just, you seem to really be getting this. And she walked away and I felt so low because that wasn't true for me. 
everything she said that on the outside looked like I was feeling and doing and being was not the way I was in the inside. Do you recall the first time when you're when you felt like your insides matched your outsides? <laughs> I recall generally the period of time when it happened. Yeah. What you were just describing sounds like what I felt like in my first 10 months or so mm -hmm. of, of AA. Part of it was a relief. Part of it was, you know, wonderful because I had people to, to talk with. But part of it was, you know, I learned how to mimic what people say when they're sober. Yeah. I learned how to mimic those, uh, those feelings. I could even memorize, a, you know, a couple of those prayers, mm -hmm. you know, but after the relapse and, um, after that feeling that I was describing of feeling the presence of God constantly, a lot of things shifted mm. for one. I just cared less about what people thought, you know, I'd find myself every now and then thinking, okay, uh, I could say, no, I don't. I don't care to present an image for this person. I'm just talking to this person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd have these faint ghosts of these old instincts. Another one coming up, I could tell you who was to blame for just about any problem I had. And <laughs> I would happily do so. On the other side of that, which, you know, it's what I would call at least the beginnings of a spiritual awakening. My posture is more toward taking 100% responsibility for everything in life. Even if someone else has done something, you know, that I might have found offensive, uh -huh. I still have an opportunity there to say, okay, 100% responsibility, Joseph, uh, what's, what's your part in this? That is that last column on the fourth step inventory anyway, and I do that all the time. So, um, you know, I just start thinking, what's my part in this? And, you know, I could find my part in just about any, you know, any conflict to your bigger point. I think if you really feel the presence of God, if you really truly surrender, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff just doesn't matter as much to you. And I guess it seems fairly recent chronologically for me, mm -hmm. but every time I think about it, I look back and think, well, I suffered for 50 years. I, you know, <laughs> I, know, I know all the ways that don't work. So Yeah, I get that. This one feels better. I'll bet it does. And I, I can see it in your face and hear it in your words. There's a lot of years between when you first started drinking and when you stopped. If you had to summarize that chunk of years, first of all, how many are we talking about? And uh, I, I guess I could stop and do the math, but you can tell me more quickly. I think it's 30. 30 years. So you had 30 years yeah. of drinking. Were, were there drugs involved along the way? Yeah. Okay. So 30 years of drinking, you mentioned jobs and doing well in jobs and being a functional alcoholic. When did that veneer start to wear off? And when did you first acknowledge that you had or might have a, a real problem? I think after grad school, kind of going into um, some of my corporate career, maybe other people were aware that there was you know, there's a little fraying around the edges. I was, I was pretty aware of it. Hmm. You know, I had a job that was, uh, it was a fancy job. You know, I got to fly first class on planes and stay in four star hotels and have fancy dinners and expense accounts and stuff like that. One of the secrets about living that life is that pretty much everywhere you go, somebody's putting a drink in your hand. Yeah. You know, you check it, check in for your flight, you go to the lounge, you go, sir, would you like a glass of champagne? Well, yes, of course I would. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get, then you get um, 
on the plane before everybody else, and they say, "Would you like more champagne?" And you say, yeah. well, "Yes, of course, I would." And you know, it's nightcaps at the hotels and meetings over drinks and dinners mm-hmm. with you know really expensive bottles of wine. And mm-hmm. so I had a job where at least part of the job involved drinking. Yeah, and. I would say that it's probably the part of the job that I did, did the best at. <laughs> it involved whining and dining others, or were you the one being whined and dined? Uh, actually, it would go in both directions. Really? Yeah, we had vendors who would take me out to all kinds of you know nifty things, but I would also take people out for dinners or you know do big team events or things like that. How long did that go on? That's. A decade or more. I had a corporate career uh, that lasted throughout a decade, and then um, I left and uh, did more consulting work. And mm-hmm. um, if you know anything about the consulting business, it's pretty much the same. You're flying from place to place. You're in airport lounges. You're having happy hours, that kind of thing. During that time, during the decade that you were in that corporate before you went into the consulting, were you still single at the time or had you gotten married? Uh, what, when did all that come into your life? I got married during that time and um, it didn't go well. It didn't go well. I think, you know. Because of your drinking? Um, because of who I am as a person, which is probably why I drank. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I get it. Yeah. 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 Um, I grew up with some pretty, you know, wrong ideas about uh, how people are in relationship, what expectations are in relationship. I, you know, just I didn't see good models of that growing up. And if I had had good models for that, I'm not sure I would have had the presence of mind or the clarity to understand them. Mm. So, um, yeah, relationships generally were just, you know, for me they were kind of friendships. They were mostly superficial. Mm. That's tough. Yeah, it's a thing that kind of perpetuates the loneliness and isolation. turns out the only way to have a loving relationship with another person is to let them in. And I haven't been ready to do that until just the last couple of years. That's such an important self-realization, especially when we're not feeling good about ourselves. It's, it's, I think it's almost like a self-protection mechanism built in, though, in a way. Uh, although some people are attracted to people who are having problems and are diff- having difficult lives. But my experience, I didn't get, I didn't get married until later in my twenties. And at some point I thought I'll never find anybody. I'll never, you know, and my wife and I now have been married like 36, 37 years. But at the time I thought, well, I may not be able to get married or have children or whatever, but I'll still have this lifestyle. And there was still something still very appealing about it. And it wasn't until I started dating the woman who's now my wife, who had an alcoholic father who died of alcoholism. And many years later, I realized that the reason she married me was to work out the problems with her dad. And they, they never worked out. I think that's why a lot of times alcoholics marry other alcoholics or women who aren't alcoholic marry alcoholics to try and deal with their own issues along the way. That sounds about right. You talk about that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I think the real crisis for me started right around midlife, I guess. But, you know, I'd had the scripts in childhood about what life is supposed to be like. And I did all of the things that I was supposed to do. You know, I got married. 
had kids. I got a fancy job. You know, I had a lot of fancy titles. I had a nice car. I had a nice house. And um, I wasn't getting happier. I was uh, I was getting more miserable and I was getting fatter too. <laughs> so I was drinking, gaining weight, not able to maintain good relationships. But, you know, I had that lifestyle. So, hey, that's good. But I, I don't know how much longer I could have... Uh, could have kept things going if COVID hadn't come along. But I will tell you, I, I feel really grateful for uh, for COVID because it forced me, forced me to look at myself. It forced me to take steps in a direction that I never would have taken steps in. And, you know, even with, um, you know, the things that we talk about with meetings on Zoom, for example, it was perfect for me. It forced me to go to a meeting because all you guys who used to get up and brush your teeth and get in cars and drive places and do things, I didn't have any excuse. Every meeting in the world was happening right here in this chair I'm sitting in right now. That's right. And even to this day, even though I've been to a few in-person meetings, right. I still tend toward the Zoom meetings because it was there when I was first getting sober and it's the, it's the method that I got comfortable with. So all of these things just lined up in a way that said, you can make whatever choice you want, but the old ways aren't working anymore. Here's a better way. Mm. And I just feel deeply grateful for that. It's important to feel grateful about it because that means we are concentrating on not forgetting it. I get that. So let me ask you, what, what bottoms were you hitting along the way before you finally got sober? I mean... It's usually for me, it wasn't always, it, it was more than just one time. It seemed like I hit, I was walking all over cliff after cliff, you know, the more I tried to fix things, the worse they seemed to get. What did those last years before COVID look like for you in terms of what was going on in your life related to alcohol and alcoholism? There were some um, things that would look like bottoms to other people, you know, um, getting in trouble, getting, uh, you know, getting pulled over, things like that. Um, but the real bottoms for me were, you know, quieter mm. moments, you know, it was embarrassment at having, uh, said something stupid or regret at having pushed someone away when, you know, I had an opportunity to, uh, to be more open or, uh, just those, you know, terrible, terrible hangover mornings where, kind of look around and go, is this really what I'm doing with my life? Hmm. Those, those were more bottoms for me than, um, than any sort of external thing. Um, because I came to hate myself. I would think about suicides, you know, several times a day and I wasn't acting on it, but I was thinking about it more often than I imagine any, any healthy person would. Yeah. That's a pretty bad feeling when you think the only recourse is one that really doesn't have any, I mean, you can't come back from that. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the unmanageability and your feelings about that when you first saw that. How did you try and manage or how did you try and control things before you got to AA? What were you doing before you got to AA to, to let's say, rationally think you could handle it yourself or I can manage this if I just do these next things? What things did you try? You know, it's funny when you come into AA and they talk about, you know, having a program. 
I had a much more elaborate program really? prior to AA. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. I mean, I knew how much to have in the house on hand. If I was going to go to an event, you know, let's say it's, uh, you know, the next town 20 miles up the road, I would have already figured out how to drink as much as I wanted to and still get home without, you know, mm-hmm. getting in trouble or causing an accident or anything like that. I had the timing worked out for when to get to social events, you know, when to leave, things like that. I mean, AA is an easy program compared to all of the different things that I did. To be <laughs> it sounds like a drink. lot of work to keep drinking. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, AA feels like being on vacation sometimes because <laughs> I'm not having to work as hard at it. <laughs> so was it that that had failed for you that you decided now's the time to get into AA or was did it just become too much work to keep it up? Uh, my life just wasn't going to hold together anymore. I, I think I was I was getting to the point where I was feeling kind of antisocial. Like a lot of alcoholics, I didn't like to be told what to do. So anyone who would dare mention that maybe I had a beer at 11 a.m., you know, you would hear about it from me. Um, those kinds of things just began to pick up. And, you know, I had been dating someone who was just, done with it all, but happy to help. She was very kind, you know, and supportive mm-hmm. during that time. Um, that helped a lot. I had friends who said, Hey, you know, we'll always be your friend, but, uh, you got to do something about this. So I had, you know, a small number of people being very mm-hmm. encouraging and I had a large number of personal experiences, you know, pretty much on a daily basis going, well, let's see. I'm doing something that is expensive and difficult and requires a lot of planning. And I still think about suicide, you know, half a dozen times a day. Um, AA didn't look attractive to me at all. It wasn't something I wanted to do. But um, the alternative wasn't looking really good either. I couldn't figure out how it was going to work out. Did you seek out any like uh, psychiatric or talk therapy at the time? I did. I talked to my doctor about it. Um, about the time I got sober, I ended up getting introduced to a great therapist who's still my therapist to this day. Sobriety is a part of our work. Uh, spirituality is a part of our work. So that was really good. I think having a doctor who's that supportive also is just, uh, it's an unexpected gift. You know, I think we expect that we go to the doctor and they're going to give us a pill or take our blood pressure or something like that. But for this person to spend over an hour just sitting and listening and empathizing and asking questions, it was uh, it was just a tremendous gift and at just the right time. I'll bet it was. So you make the decision, you think about Wes at the time, and he was the first guy you called when you decided that AA was going to be the way to go. Yes. Wes had been um, more than just a friend. He'd been a teacher in... Um, on a spiritual mm-hmm. path. And, you know, you might recall that um, the God thing hadn't really sunk in with me at that time. That has nothing to do with Wes. It has to do with me having been on that path and been resisting that path at the same mm-hmm. time. And so, you know, when Wes and I talk about the path, it's not different paths, it's just the same one. I had been on a spiritual path. I came to a point where I was blocked and couldn't go any further. Mm -hmm. When I had the fortunate gift of needing help 
with alcohol. It was a different part of that same path. And uh, mm-hmm. now in a couple of years in with a little bit of contentment and sobriety and humility and all of the things that come with um, our commitments to doing our own work, I just see more and more of this mm-hmm. same path. And uh, Wes is just such a dear friend to be able to walk that path with. He's a beautiful person and it's so important to have somebody like that in your life on a daily basis. Before you asked him about AA, or certainly before he became your sponsor, did he ever confront you on your drinking, or did he know anything about it prior to uh, that call? I don't think so. I'd never drank around him. So in all the time that we had worked together in the spiritual tradition, I you know, hadn't been drinking during any of that. The couple of dinners that we had had, I never, never drank around him. But I think that... Sometimes you can see an alcoholic even when the alcoholic isn't drinking. Yeah. I wondered if he had sussed you out. (laughs) I bet he did. I'd be very surprised if he hadn't. He's very perceptive that way. You've been in the program now two years. What sort of things are you doing now on a daily basis? And, And the reason I'm asking you this is more as something instructional for people who are listening who have less than two years. Sometimes people with 20, 30 years, the newcomer or the guy with one year feels like he can't relate, so he doesn't even listen at all. What sort of things are you doing, though, that you can uh, attribute to your feelings about yourself and about other people and your relationship with your higher power? I think it's all a spiritual path, whether it's meditation in the morning or running. Um, Running itself is a part of the same the same path for me. Mm -hmm. Wes has a different way of going about the steps. And, you know, I know people have their preferences and their, you know, their ways to do it. But the way Wes presented it to me, he said, let's get through this first round of the 12 steps as quickly as possible so you can get started on it again. And getting started on it again becomes a daily practice. And so each day when I get up, I don't always have the space that I would like to meditate, although I make, uh, you know, make an effort and do it more often mm-hmm. than not. Sometimes the kids get up a little, little earlier than I do. And once they're up, it's kind of hard to have that time. But I go through the mental checklist of the steps on a daily basis. And I mean, as, as explicitly as, well, do you think you could beat booze today? <laughs> nope. <laughs> booze, booze was undefeated in our <laughs> fighting career. Well, do you think there's a higher power than you in the universe? Certainly. Absolutely. Can you give everything over to that higher power? Yeah. And then, you know, go through things like, have I acquired some new resentments that I need to, you know, figure out my part in mm-hmm. and get rid of? Um, have, I, have I caused anyone any harm? You know, I try not to make a big deal about those things. I try to, you know, just take them as, you know, more of a habit. Something's just a part of every day. But, you know, occasionally maybe I need to send a send a message to the DoorDash driver and say, hey, I was kind of short with you on, <laughs> you know, on that delivery. I, I apologize or something like that. But I try to maintain, you know, good spiritual hygiene because once you get all those stories going in your head and once everything gets cluttered up there, I think that's when you begin to lose that 
that real signal to your yourself and your presence, you know, your presence as an expression of God in this world. That's a hell of a commitment you've made. That's a lot of work on a daily basis. It's got built-in accountability to another person who likely says, have you done these things? Can I assume from what you're saying that you might agree with the statement, get somebody who you're willing to have hold you accountable? Absolutely. There's someone that, uh, that I've dated who is also in recovery. And I've seen a couple of sponsor mismatches there. It's not my place to to say it, but I watch it, you know, and I think, hmm, man, if I had a sponsor who interacted with me that way, I would be counting down the days until the next drink. <laughs> oh, um, I think that sponsor relationship is important. I think the accountability is important. Uh, you know, I don't think you're looking for necessarily your best friend, because this person needs to be able to, you know, hold up a mirror and say, well, here's what I see here. But that person does need to be someone that you, I don't know, for me anyway, someone that I enjoy being around, someone whom I respect, and someone who, even in the unthinkable scenario that Wes could be wrong about something, I could at least uh, understand how he might have come to be wrong about it. You've got other people who know him and who know you who might give you some ideas in addition to anything that you may gain from your own sponsor. Are you actively sponsoring some people yourself now? I'm not actively formally sponsoring anyone. I've had this remarkable experience where, you know, in in the kind of work I do in the community that uh, that I'm in, people don't really talk that openly about their mental health. They don't talk very openly about addiction, alcoholism, things like that. And yet people seem to come to me and say, hey, um, you know, somebody told me you don't drink. You know, can you can you tell me about that? Uh, how does that work? Mm. And so I'll end up helping them in kind of a sponsor-like way. But, you know, sometimes people need to ease into, into the program, and I'm, I'm cool with that. I kind of need to ease in myself. And just one day you'll find somebody comes up to you and say, you know, I've been, I've been listening to you for a long time now. And I, would you, would you work with me? And that's a wonderful feeling when it happens, as long as you can let go of the results. So you're involved in the Zoom meetings. Uh, you mentioned a handful of live meetings. Do you have plans to do more live meetings or you, will you still uh, do the predominant meetings online? I think I will probably continue to um, to stay online predominantly. Some of the in-person meetings I've been to around here, um, you know, no fault of anyone else's, but there is a special vibe in our Saturday morning meeting that is uh, it's just wonderful. And I haven't found quite that sense of rapport and camaraderie. And, you know, it's not to say that meeting isn't out there, but I haven't been to it yet. But um, I still, you know, I'll still every now and then go to a live meeting and I'm always grateful for the experience. But uh, I also feel fortunate that I didn't know the difference in the early yeah, days of COVID. Yeah, well, for those of us who had an AA program prior to COVID and prior to this whole Zoom phenomenon, to me, there's nothing more gratifying than to be able to talk to somebody, make a difference in their life, shake a hand, give a hug, sit next to somebody, get them a cup of coffee, whatever it might be. 
see the newcomer, see the guy in the room shaking who may be a few days in. So I always suggest to men that I sponsor and other people in the program, take advantage of some of the live stuff too. It, it's, it's amazing. There's so much of it out there to be had. Uh, I have a tendency to get on soapboxes about different things, but I know live meetings are, they're, they're integral in my life, but I still go to two, I still have two Zoom meetings, Saturday morning being one of them. The other one is out of uh, London, as a matter of fact. And I've gotten to know some of those people better than I know people in person. So there's a lot to be said for Zoom and the ease of being able to go to a lot of meetings any time of day or night. I'll say this. Um, during those days when I was trying to get my 90 and 90, there were days that would get really full. And yet I always knew that 11 o'clock at night, there was a meeting out of L.A. And if I missed every other meeting, I could still get in and get a meeting that day before going to bed. And there's something cool about that. There's also something cool about being able to do a meeting in Panama City, to do one in Johannesburg. I did meetings out of Dublin and London and places like that. But I think the bigger thing that I would tell anyone who was you know, coming in new, your preferences might very well be a part of the illness. Fact is, whatever works, whatever allows you to be open and surrendered to receiving you know, what God wants to put in your heart, that's the thing that's going to work. So whether it's um, in person or Zoom or text or you know going on a three week retreat, whatever it takes, you know, I think God will find a way. That that is so well said and so true that people have to find their own homeostasis in the program, and different things work for different people. As long as you've got the connection to a higher power and you're getting the gifts of the program, there's no reason to switch it around too much, especially if you're enjoying the people and the atmosphere of the entire program. And it sounds to me like you are. This has been such a wonderful opportunity for us to talk, Joseph. I feel like I know you so much better. And the cool thing about it is that you notice how uh, out of all the meetings you go to, you get to know people five minutes at a time. You know, the little bit before the meeting, that's true. So many of the people I've interviewed, when I hear them speaking in meetings, there's a contextual feature there that wasn't there before. Like, I understand why he said that in the little blurb that he said today, because of something broader that I know about. So I feel I know you more broadly and in a way that makes me both respect and bless your sobriety and your your journey here. And is there anything additional that you'd like to add that Somebody fast forwards to the end just to get the nuggets and they get to you with this nugget. What would that be? I'm tempted to say the secret to it all was at the one hour and five minute mark. <laughs> <laughs> James, um, who we, you know, we're in meetings with on a weekly basis. Oh, yeah. This was just specifically relevant to me. But, you know, when I was really struggling with this and I was just done with it because I'd done everything I'd been told and I wasn't getting my, my peace and, you know, where was my bliss and all that. James gave me some feedback that was very direct and very loving. And he said, you're just a know-it-all. You're the guy who has to have all the answers. And so long as you're having the answers, you're not going to hear any from anybody else. Man, that was powerful, powerful, powerful. I don't need to struggle with the God thing. I need to stop trying to struggle with the God thing and just, you know, just listen. 
I don't need to keep score or have preferences or anything like that. I just need to um, just need to be quiet and listen and pay attention. Yeah, it sounds like a great way to proceed with what I hope will be a lifelong program of happiness and meaningfulness for you. And again, many thanks for doing this today. I love you and I honor everything that you're doing to not only stay sober yourself, but spread the message just by virtue of being you. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing many, many more meetings with you, brother. I love you too, Howard. I really appreciate you inviting me. Thanks, Joseph. God bless. Have a good rest of the day, brother. I'll see you on Saturday. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Joseph L., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all my interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear more than 120 episodes of AA Recovery Interviews. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.